Welcome to this edition of Rail Group on Air. This is Railway Age Editor-in-Chief William C. Van Tuono. I'm very pleased to welcome the Railway Supply Institute. We have Mike O'Malley, who is president, and Nicole Bruin, who is vice president of government and public affairs. Welcome. Uh, it's good to have you uh, on board. Bill, thanks for having us. So I guess uh, I'd like to start with asking you about the uh, state of the supply industry in these tough times. Uh, how, how are the suppliers uh, faring? Well, you know, I think, Bill, this has been a real testament to uh, the resiliency of our industry, and I would extend that to the railroads and, you know, everyone else involved as well. Uh, it's very, very tough times in terms of all the impacts that uh, COVID-19 has had across the board, whether you look at auto manufacturers being shut down, oil prices being at remarkably low levels. Um, you know, there are a whole series of uh, rail customers that are challenged by this, and that means railroads and their suppliers are as well. Uh, you know, we were already facing some real challenges uh, and some of the slowdown in the industrial economy, uh, some of the um, PSR-related operational changes the railroads have made, uh, which have improved efficiencies for sure, but when you're using a lot less assets, the folks who build and maintain those assets obviously um, are affected by that. Yeah, we just saw how Norfolk Southern uh, uh, took a big uh, hit in the first quarter, $385 million charge. Uh, they're, they're shedding 703 locomotives. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's, uh, you know, it, it's a remarkable time from that perspective. Um, I think everyone is uh, trying to figure out creative ways to, uh, to get through it. Um, and, you know, the one thing I would say is, you saw a lot of the shutdowns across North America to respond to COVID at the state and provincial level. You know, our members were deemed essential. Uh, they have been continuing to support the railroads in supporting the COVID response and all the materials and goods, uh, critical goods that are needed, whether you're talking about medical or food related or other things. Uh, and so that's a good thing. And I, and I think it's been a testament to uh, the way I've seen our suppliers stay open, continue to support their customers while taking, you know, very significant um, actions to protect their employees in the process. Um, so since in cleaning, you know, all the CDC guidelines. So, you know, there are some real good things coming out of this when you look at the way things, uh, uh, people are responding, but it is a very challenging time for sure. I wanted to ask about the uh, CARES Act, the, uh, the, the stimulus money, uh, which seems to keep growing and growing in availability. Do you have any feel for if any of our uh, uh, suppliers, maybe the, uh, the smaller companies, obviously, or maybe even some of the bigger companies? Yeah, so I think definitely some of our small and medium-sized uh, suppliers are eligible. I know that some are taking advantage of those funds. Generally speaking, I think you know, that there are uh, members who are eligible we're certainly very supportive of the federal government trying to help them get through these times, particularly over the next few months. Um, and I think you'll see as we get into a recovery bill and the next effort, whatever that may look like, certainly that's going to have impact and be really critical for all of our members, including the larger companies. So I'll give you one example in the transit space uh, and Amtrak, right? So they included $25 billion for transit agencies and about a billion dollars for Amtrak in the CARES Act. Uh, those funds are going predominantly to support operations, to keep people employed at the transit agencies, 
all of which is great. We were very supportive of that. Uh, we're hoping that in the next bill, they will also invest in capital expenditures and other kinds of things that do have a uh, direct impact on our members who are, for example, manufacturing new train sets for Amtrak or new rail cars for transit agencies. So, you know, that's something that we're going to be um, actively advocating for in order to ensure that the supply chains that support those agencies also get through this. So right now, as we know, Amtrak uh, has a bit over a billion dollars, but that is for operations, which as we know have been uh, like, like, like all passenger rail agencies around the nation, you know, ridership is down to almost nothing. Uh, uh, so this is for operations. It's also for, uh, for helping uh, states, I think, pay for their share of uh, state-funded corridors under, under PREA. So, uh, but yes, uh, uh, hopefully uh, there will be some money for, uh, uh, for capital. Uh, particularly Amtrak and a, a large agencies like the like the New York MTA, perhaps uh, or or the Chicago Transit Authority, some some of the big MBTA, some of these agencies can really uh, really use an infusion of of, uh, of dollars for uh, uh, for for capital. Absolutely, Nicole, uh, you handle the legislative and, and government side, uh, which I imagine must be a, a very interesting occupation these days. What has changed uh, under under this this pandemic with everything, and what and uh, what 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 issues are you working on, and you know what uh, what do you see going going forward? I know things are hard to predict, but mm-hmm. yeah. And so to that to that point, you know, I think we we're operating in this environment of there's there's really only yesterday, today, and tomorrow and trying to predict um, how things are, the trajectory. Um, you know, we've, we've been pretty whipsawed um, when it comes to uh, the timing of the next bill. So what we do know is that it's unlikely that Congress, or at least the House, will move on any type of COVID recovery bill to 4.55, whatever they're calling it these days. Mm-hmm. But you do know that we won't see movement until the house is actually back here in, in town. Um, primarily because they can't figure out, they can't get agreement on how to vote remotely. Um, the proxy system wasn't popular. Um, so the speaker, I think, has made the decision that until they're able to come back to town to take those votes, likely we won't see a package move. Now, I, I could be proven wrong tomorrow. You know, they, she, they may agree, have some form of an agreement that that allows that to happen. But what we're seeing is right now, the only thing that's um, you know, pretty solid is that they are going to try to do um, hearings and markups uh, remotely through, through virtual meetings and software, such as the one that we're using here today. The Senate is a little bit different. They, they continue to do work. Leader McConnell will want to take a serious look at how to continue to fund um, state and, and local because there's a lot of um, media attention right now between what's going on between the Senate, the White House, and the House. So it's going to be really interesting how the three, those you know, the con- Congress and, and the White House is going to look at, give uh, infrastructure a serious look as we move forward and if there's going to be um, the support for that. 
-hmm. understanding that, um, you know, every day we get reports that, you know, another 3.6 million people have applied for unemployment benefits. So, um, and I think a lot of uh, the leadership on the House and even some in the Senate and definitely the president has said this, that they think an infrastructure package can put a lot of people back to work. and, And we believe that. Do you have any feel for the outcome of the presidential election might do it? If it's Trump, you know, it's one thing. If it's, if it's uh, pr- presumptively Joe Biden, uh, the situation will be something else. Sure. And I think that's true if you look at a long-term reauthorization bill. But if we're talking about a bill that's going to be um, maybe a one-year or a two-year reauthorization or some sort of a, a plus-up in those accounts, I think we might have a good chance of getting something passed. I, I, you know, it's hard enough in a a presidential election to pass a Rioff bill, let alone during a pandemic. So um, it'll be without, you know, it definitely will, will, leadership will have their struggles. Um, But I think there's a good chance that we could get something done for infrastructure. It may not look exactly like fast act reauthorization, but I'm, I'm hopeful that we can get something done. Mm Mike uh, and or Nicole, uh, uh, what are you looking at, or what are you what are you watching on the regulatory side that has a, has a would have a specific impact on on our supply industry going forward? What are your what are your hot button issues you're you're keeping an eye on? Yeah, you know, I mean, there's been um, a couple of small instances of some regulatory relief that DOT has provided. Um, And in our case, one example was uh, training that folks can be doing uh, in, for example, a rail car repair shop. uh, And you can't, you don't have people able to travel, so you can't get that training done. So, you know, that DOT has um, made some uh, adjustments in terms of short-term extensions on those kinds of requirements, uh, you know, which we appreciate. And obviously we'll get those things done once we're all back together uh, and able to travel. Um, You know, otherwise, you know, I would say from a regulatory perspective, uh, there is one um, rule that I think we anticipate coming out in the not too distant future, which is the uh, liquid natural gas uh, movement by rail. That's Mm -hmm. something um, the railroads have been supportive of, we've been supportive of, um, and it's something that I know has been looked at very carefully uh, by DOT uh, in terms of the requirements that should be attached to that. Uh, and so I think we're anticipating there will be a rule come out uh, here sometime in the next few months um, and are supportive of that given you know the, the, the changes in uh, and the increase in um, uh, production of natural gas in the U.S., and the benefit of having the ability to move that by rail uh, where it makes sense. Um, Obviously, a lot of that moves by pipeline and that would continue, but we see that as a positive step forward um, from a market perspective. Um, I don't know, Nicole, is there anything else you you would reference from a regulatory perspective? The one thing I would just mention is that, um, you know, RSI, similar to the other uh, rail-related associations out there, are all keeping an eye on how um, positive train control implementation is going. Um, obviously, everything looks uh, on track, but um, it's just something that we're, we're continuing to monitor as, as the year continues to unfold here. One thing that's been tossed around uh, uh, quite a bit is using uh, uh, tank cars for storing oil. And a lot of people uh, don't 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 seem to uh, don't seem to understand that that's very difficult to do, and the and the railroads really really for for many legitimate reasons are are don't want to do that. I know your 
uh, your own uh, John Byrne, who's uh, who's a chair, correct, of the uh, uh, tank car committee, uh, gave me a very good education on that not too long ago and told me about the restrictions having to do with uh, uh, <clears throat> how crude oil can be moved and the number of cars you can move at once and the type of track that's available for storage. A lot of it is accepted track. And right. uh, what's your further thoughts on that? You know, I think, I think you've hit it right. Uh, I, I think, you know, look, at the end of the day, our members would much rather have their tank cars being used to move product, uh, not to store it. And so, you know, we're hopeful that uh, as the economy recovers, we'll start to see more of that. The immediate problem that I think a lot of the oil customers have is, what do we do with all of this oil as demand has really fallen off a cliff in a very short period of time? Um, so I think you're right. There, there will probably be some use of rail cars for storage of crude, but there are, I think, you know, rightfully a fair amount of restrictions around that from a safety and security perspective. Um, and, you know, those are things that folks just have to evaluate carefully working with the railroads or whoever owns the track. Um, and make sure it's done in the right way if it is done. But, you know, obviously our preference is to see these cars being used uh, to move uh, crude oil. And, you know, one of the other things I, I should mention is there's been a, a lot of progress um, in terms of modernizing that fleet in accordance with the FAST Act and the deadlines that have been put in place several years ago. Um, you know, we've seen about a 70% reduction um, in the probability of release for the tank car fleet over the last five years. Uh, there are no more 111s carrying crude oil. So, you know, I think we're making good progress. And obviously, you know, we're going to use this time to try and continue that, that progress so that when, when we come out of this, we've got a, a very strong modernized car fleet, whether you're talking about crude oil or other things. Now, moving, moving on a bit to one of your other uh, key committees, and that is the American Railway Car Institute. Uh, we, we, see the, we see the numbers uh, coming out on, on uh, uh, production, backlog, orders, deliveries, and as expected, that's, uh, uh, that's heading south. <laughs> uh, um, not, not, to, not, to put, not to make it light or anything like that. Of course not. As we know, the rail car building industry is cyclical and it's based on a lot of factors. How is this latest uh, cycle going to play out? Have any feel for that? Yeah, so it is a very cyclical industry. I think folks, you know, who have been in the industry for a long time have seen, um, you know, ups and downs. Uh, this is a pretty substantial, uh, you know, valley we're in here. And I think the, the question I've heard a lot of people speculating about is, is this going to be a V or is it going to be a U? In other words, you know, how long does that dip continue? Uh, orders in the first quarter of new rail cars were 6,000, which is very, very low. Um, you know, traditionally that number is at least twice that high. Um, the backlog as it stands as of uh, April 1st was at 46,000 cars. Um, just to give you a sense, a year ago, April 1st of 2019, that number was 73,000 cars. So you're seeing when you look at, you know, what is my production that I have out there in terms of orders, you know, it is 40% below roughly whatever those numbers are uh, from where it was just a year ago. Um, and so, you know, we are looking at, you know, how can we help these folks um, how can we keep people working? Uh, we did a study a few years ago that showed there are 65,000 people in the United States 
that are tied to rail car manufacturing. That includes the builders themselves, the component manufacturers, the steel that goes into the cars, you know, everything involved. And so we're gonna do all we can to try and help those folks as we go forward here. Um, and we're gonna look at, you know, what those options are. Um, and it could include uh, some tax provisions to try and incentivize people to continue to invest. Um, you know, it could be other things. Um, I, I don't expect we'll be looking for any kind of federal grants or anything of that nature um, that would be direct. But, you know, um, we're looking for ways to help those folks get through this. Um, and obviously, you know, when you think about folks who own rail cars on the leasing side, you know, they're all about how do we stimulate demand for the railroad industry? And that's all about the economic recovery, an infrastructure package, you know, all of those things would be positive in terms of, you know, again, generating demand uh, for both existing lease cars and new builds. And of course, uh, whether, uh, whether the rail traffic is, uh, is strong or not, there is a replacement need for certain car types and that, that, that will be there. They just might be replaced a little, uh, a little later than, than Absolutely. Sooner. And I think, you know, there are, as we think about this, that's one of the conversations we've been having with our members is, you know, are there ways to uh, incentivize the modernization of the fleet? So, you know, you've got a lot of older cars, um, you know, can we take this time when a lot of those cars are in storage to figure out ways to reduce the fleet and, uh, you know, modernize it, go to a lot of 286 cars um, that have more capacity. That helps when you think about the railroads and the way they're approaching efficiency, um, you know, building longer trains, if you've got a lot of 286 cars in that, in that train versus 263s, you know, you're going to be able to carry more with less, as they say. Um, and I think that's important, not only to the railroads and their customers, but also to communities. So if, you know, if, you, if, if you've got shorter trains carrying the same amount of goods, that's a good thing in terms of grade crossings and everything else. I was uh, with one of the class one railroads back in 2009, 2010, um, working at, at the time and dealing with state and local officials across the network. And we had cars parked in a lot of different places. And it, it you know, we had a lot of phone calls from people saying, can you please get rid of these cars? Um, that's, that's, you know, a real kind of uh, issue you have to deal with, right? I mean, there are only so many places that you can park these cars. So, um, that's something that folks have to deal with. And again, our focus is on how do we get the economy going again? How do we get people back to work and, you know, get those cars out moving and carrying freight? And, and getting people back to work in the, in the rail car uh, building business, uh, one of the problems that the builders uh, face uh, in, in a cyclical type market is that if they have to close down a line or temporarily shut down a plant and lay people off, in a in a uh, if the economy is good, those people aren't don't, won't necessarily stick around and come back to work. Uh, so it so the builders have to go through this whole retraining process, and that takes time and money. Now, in this particular circumstance, where uh, where there may not be different jobs to go to, so it's it's. But do you think it's possible that that the um, the builders will be able to? recall people that, uh, that, that they will not have to retrain and that'll actually give, give them a head start. Yeah. So, you know, I think anytime you have that kind of disruption, both for the companies and for the people involved, that's not a good thing, right? And, and it's going to take you time 
and create challenges in shutting down and starting back up. And I think that's where we understand there are always going to be cycles, but the more we can level that out a little bit and help people get through this process um, with at least you know, a minimum base of continued builds is going to be a good thing, um, you know, particularly if you're talking about shutting down facilities and then starting them back up. You know, there are capital needs, um, uh, equipment needs, all of that, that becomes much more challenging. So, you know, I think that's our goal is to keep, uh, you know, keep people operating where they can, even if it's at, uh, you know, lower run rates. Um, in terms of the employees, I think you're right that um, now is a time where, uh, you know, if people leave and come back, you know, that may be a little bit easier if, uh, if, if the unemployment rate is high, but you know, that's, that's not a good thing necessarily. You know what I mean? It, it's, we're really trying to help keep, keep folks working within, uh, reason wherever we can. I wanted to talk a bit about uh, an, uh, an underlying issue that's that's been uh, we've been dealing with for quite some time in this industry, mainly on the transit side. But that is the uh, state-owned enterprises, uh, specifically uh, CRRC, the, the Chinese uh, Chinese companies, and uh, not not to disparage uh, any uh, any any nation or anything like that. Where does that stand now? So, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this is, this is not about, you know, the people of China or about, you know, um, you know, that sort of thing. This is really about how do people compete in the marketplace? Is it done on a fair basis? And, you know, frankly, when you're talking about federal dollars that are being invested in new rail cars, are they following by America and, you know, all the requirements that, um, you know, we have in place um, over the last several years, uh, we've seen about two and a half billion dollars worth of orders uh, that CRRC has won. Um, they have won those by an average of 20 plus percent below the next lowest bid. Uh, in some cases, as much as 50 percent below. Um, that just doesn't feel like um, you know a market approach. Uh, we know they get a lot of subsidies uh, from the Chinese government. And they have been very, very aggressive and very clear that they want to conquer the global market. They have said that literally. Um, it's part of the Made in China 2025. Yes, yeah. That they have laid out. This is one of 10 sectors they have identified as critical. Um, and there's clearly a threat on the freight side of the business as well. So, you know, it, it, that isn't going to go away. I think there are much broader issues in terms of the U.S.-China relationship right now. Um, but that is something that we are continuing to stay vigilant on. And in December, Congress passed legislation uh, called the Transit Infrastructure Vehicle Security Act, or TIPSA, um, which banned the use of federal money for purchase of rail cars from Chinese state-owned enterprises. And we were supportive of that. And, um, you know, I think it was a direct response to concerns about the way they were um, operating in the market and the fact we were using federal money uh, to support a state-owned enterprise. That must be difficult, though, for uh, uh, from the perspective of the transit agency, which is practically obligated to give the contract to the lowest bidder because the transit agencies are, are, are taxpayer-funded, of course, largely. Uh, Fairbox revenue only covers a, a, a portion of, uh, of operating and capital costs. So, uh, that's got to be a tough call uh, for, for, for the agencies. Well, I think that's why it really was a national or is a national issue that needs to be dealt with at that level. 
you're right. They have procurement processes that are public, very transparent. Generally speaking, um, they're directed to take the lowest bid. And so that's really then the question is, are the people who are bidding following the rules in the right way, competing in a market-related way, following Buy America, et cetera? And I think that's what you know the concern was. That wasn't happening. Um, and so this was the national government saying, you know, we're going to sort of help you all uh, set the rules. The one thing I would say is, you know, it also underscores the importance of an infrastructure package, right? So if we can help uh, with investment for the transit agencies in this kind of rolling stock, uh, particularly if we can do it over a, you know, five or six year time frame where people can plan, that will help both the transit agencies and our members to make investments in their plants and keep people working uh, as we try and get the economy to recover coming out of this. So, you know, that is a clear way that Congress can help, um, you know, U.S. jobs. And, and those jobs aren't just in big cities. They are all over the country. They're very often in rural areas. Nicole, in terms of uh, RSI's legislative uh, priorities, uh, things like fast act reauthorization, Section 130, truck size and weight, some of the other things uh, you're, you're constantly working on, uh, uh, that doesn't change. What, uh, where do some of those things stand? As some of our top priorities, even before the pandemic, you know, investment in rail infrastructure um, has always been uh, critical to our members, um, as well as ensuring, um, you know, the, the continuation of essential maintenance, repair, equipment refurbishment, acquisitions. Um, so the, the rail grants that are within um, the FAST Act, uh, we were so happy to see that, that title created in the, the, the original uh, FAST Act authorization. So we want to continue to see that reauthorized um, when, a, when a, a long-term bill has been picked up and, and Congress is gonna look at what, what, if it's not gonna be a six-year bill, what makes sense um, for, for grant programs that could, that could help the economy. So we really think like grant, uh, um, the grant programs within the FRA, like the Consolidated Rail Infrastructure Safety Improvement Grant Program, the Federal Partnership for the State of Good Repair, mm -hmm. um, Capital Investment Grants for Transit, RIF loans, um, the Infra and Build Grants. But we also look um, at things such as the Section 130 Highway Rail Grade Crossing Safety Program. Um, that's been a very important one and one that RSI has championed for many, many, many years. Um, and it's so important for the states to continue to have that money um, to do the, the safety programs and to, to, you know, to help protect the motorists at, at highway rail grade crossings. Um, and then the third, I would say, uh, just going back to the, to the question that you had asked Mike about um, Chinese state-owned enterprises, we really think that this is a good opportunity for Congress to look at modernizing the, the Buy America program and reflect the, the changing landscape of our global economy. Um, we feel that there are things that can be done to really tighten up the program. We're not looking to say, hey, we need to increase the percentage, but we, we do think that there's some very uh, basic things that can be done within um, the calculation of the program or even bringing in um, the audits in, inside, in-house at FTA. We really believe that that could help streamline and make the, the program more transparent. Speaking of grade crossings, Operation Lifesaver in Canada announced a partnership with Waze, you know, the, the uh, W-A-Z-E, the, uh, the smartphone app 
for for automobiles for 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 GPS for for navigation, uh, where the system will now alert motorists that there is a grade crossing, uh, whether it's a protected or unprotected crossing. This this is something that's I I think from a safety standpoint is is rather encouraging. Do you see anything like that on underway here in 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 the U.S.? I think it would be very beneficial. It doesn't seem that hard to do. What's interesting about that is, um, you know, I also sit on the the board of Operation Lifesaver, and um, wow. we've been talking about these programs for some time now. I know that um, Norfolk Southern had a very successful, and I, I believe it's still go ongoing. Perhaps it was a, a pilot program for the Atlanta community. Um, and I believe that Waze and Google are officially rolling out their crossing map, so to speak. So it's not going to be a warning that pops up on your screen uh, announcing it, this is a grade crossing, but it's more or less going to make sure that people know that they don't turn down a railway, railway crossing. So it'll be interesting to also see how that may help uh, when it comes to occupied crossings. We're also working um, to try and get a little bit more money for Operation Lifesaver uh, through their FRA reauthorization. Currently, Operation Lifesaver receives about uh, one million, a little over a million, and we're, we're working with um, house staff right now to try and bump that up to, to three million. So we're hopeful because it's a, it's a great organization and it's one that works on a very small, with, with a very small staff on a very important and big safety message. Yeah. So. Well, Mike, Mike and Nicole, I'd like to thank you both very much for uh, for joining us on this podcast. Uh, we wish you continued uh, good health and uh, and safety, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, we'll all be uh, we'll all be back at the next uh, the next event. Uh, by the way, where where does the uh, the RSI uh, show stand? Um, thanks for asking, Bill. Um, and and we share your your concern and uh, hope for everyone. Uh, going forward, that we can all stay safe and uh, emerge from this stronger. Uh, we are planning to have our RSI conference in Chicago in September. It's from September 9th to September 11th. Um, obviously, we're working closely with the Hyatt Regency Hotel there, where it's being hosted, um, and you know, to sort of plan out, you know, what are the options to do that? Uh, what kinds of measures would we need to take in order to ensure? safety, cleanliness, you know, kind of all the common CDC practices that you're seeing right now. Um, and, but, you know, we're, we're uh, excited about it. I think our exhibitors, from what we have heard, are excited about it. They're anxious to get in front of their customers. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're, we're planning as if uh, we're hosting it in September. And, uh, you know, we'll see where we are at that point. But um, we are excited about it. We're certainly hopeful and would invite everyone to uh, join us, and if you go to rsiconference.org, uh, you'll find uh, details on the schedule. All right, and uh, rest assured that uh, Railway Age and our associated publications will keep uh, keep our readership informed on what's going on in terms of uh, conferences and, and industry events. And one of these days, we will get back to normal, whatever that new normal might be. Thank, thank you, Nicole and uh, Mike, once again for joining us. And uh, best to you and uh, have a safe day.